you would turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Peter's second letter, 2 Peter chapter 1, as we continue our study there. Our focus today, as you can see, is on verses 10 and 11, but I will read, as I did last week, verses 3 through 11, just for context and for setting the stage appropriately. 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, according through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire." For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if, if, These qualities are yours and are increasing. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray that the truths, the realities, the summons, and the commands of the passage we just read would become ours in truth. Please cause us to be yielding to Your Word. And Father, we pray, we beg that You would bring this love, the love we just read about, that we need to add to our faith, to supplement our faith with. I pray that You would bring this love to fruition in our hearts, that we would love our brothers and sisters in truth and not be found to be liars, saying we love God, but giving safe harbor to bitterness, and contempt towards those who belong to you. We pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. So, there is an all-powerful, all-sufficient, all-wonderful, all-loving being who created the universe. His name, as he has revealed himself, is I Am or in the Hebrew, Yahweh. And this God has designed that His magnificence, His glory, His power, should not remain hidden. And in fact, before any other creatures existed, there was a will at work in the person of God to make known His glory. And this desire to make His glory and His power and His magnificence known is what gives rise to the universe. 
The reason there is such a thing as stars and galaxies and the human race and everything else is because this God, this being, it is because I am has decided to make Himself known. And it is not just that these things exist. In fact, the reason behind the fact that our first parents were permitted to disobey this being is because there are things about God at work in the heart of God that are real, that are always there, that yet cannot come to be, that cannot be expressed unless there is an object on which to pour it out. Here's what I mean. God has always been gracious. God has always been merciful. Or we could say it this way. All that is in God that brings Him to acts of mercy have been there forever, from before all time. And it is fitting that those things would be brought to fruition. This is why there is such a thing as the curse. This is why there is such a thing as a promise for an offspring to come and crush the head of a serpent. This is why there is a cross. God's mercy, God's grace needed, or it was fitting, that it would be on display. God ordained to redeem you, and this is how Paul says it in Colossians chapter 1, that Christ, as the crucified Messiah, would be made preeminent. That was the plan from before all time. And you and I are caught up into this. Your relationship with Jesus is not merely about the simple binary of whether or not you end up in heaven or you end up in hell. The reality of the Gospel is that God's magnificence, His glory, expressed in the person of Jesus in the narrative of His life and His work to redeem mankind is part of His will to make known things about Himself that could not be known in any other way. We are the objects of mercy. We are the vessels of grace so that in the coming ages He might pour out His grace and mercy on us and display to us and make known to us these riches. These are things about God that the angels can know about, but they cannot experience. There are things about God's grace and His mercy that you can't know unless you receive it. This is God's design. This is why Christ will be preeminent in all things. This is what Peter means in verses 3 and 4 primarily, and as it unfolds, In 5, 6, and 7, the Gospel is not merely a rescue plan. Ah, we bungled it up. Eve, why would you eat the fruit? Alright, we got to fix this thing. That's not what it's about. It's about causing you and me to partake of the divine nature, as we just read. And how is it that we do that? How is it that in our lives, in the day today, we even now become participants in the divine nature. It's as is referred to in another place in Scripture, we begin to share His holiness. Don't you see? It's not just about the simple binary of do you have faith and are you saved and are you going to heaven? If God's design, His plan, is that we would partake of the divine nature, that we would see and know these things that are in God, in the person of His Son, Jesus, and this is why we are caught up into God's plan, then as we live it day by day, we begin to live it out 
in our lives as we share His holiness. This is why these virtues matter and why they must, in fact, be added to our faith because the point is not to just get you on the bus bound for heaven. It is to cause you to image forth or share in or show, shine back to God the things about Himself that are true and good and right. These seven virtues that we've been talking about, the qualities of faith, these must be added to faith because they are the purpose of faith. This is what God has brought you into His family, that you would bear fruit for God. Any tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is my concern. This is my, the, the gravity of my pastoral zeal for passages like this. God has brought us back to life in this life. The life that is part of Christian life, the life that Jesus brings, that is the light of the world, starts now as we walk like He walked, as we share in His holiness. So now, as we continue in our study of Second Peter, it's important to keep in mind the structure of this letter and why Peter is writing what he's writing and where these verses fall into place with the whole plan. It seems, if you study Second Peter closely, it seems that his whole point, the whole point of the letter, is to address or to denounce false teaching. A very particular kind of false teaching. These false teachers we meet in chapter 2. This particular kind of false teaching is essentially against everything I said in the beginning. There is an idea at work in these false teachers in chapter 2 that says you can have all the benefits of salvation, you can have all the forgiveness, you can have the kingdom of God without following in the example of Jesus. All forgiveness, no holiness. That was a danger then and it is endemic today. So 2 Peter is a very important letter for us to consider in our day and age. These verses then, namely verses 11, uh, 3 through 11, rather, function in four major ways in this context. This is, this is how they work in context. Number one, they show us in context of the letter and the denunciation of false teaching what the gospel really is. This is Peter's way as an apostle of Jesus to set the record straight. Number two, he begins to show, Peter begins to show in a positive way the error of the false teachers whom we will meet in chapter 2 again. And he does this by showing what the gospel means for our daily lives and our destiny. And how holy living is not just a nice to have, but is an essential component of our salvation. He's laying the groundwork in a positive way to denounce the false teaching. Number three, he also summons the church very simply to obedience. Meaning, in, in verses 3 through 11, he's saying, You ought actually to live this way. This, this is what you should do. You should live like this. And then, number four, he offers strong encouragement and motivation for us for this kind of life. Namely, he answers all the why questions. Why should we live this way? Why should we add these seven qualities to our faith? Why is it not enough to just believe? He answers that. 
He points backwards and answers, and, and I think that's what we see in verses 3 and 4, the gospel, the cosmic gospel that he presents. And then he gives us four answers to the why question pointing forward, and that is verses 8, 9, 10, and 11. Again, these are not just nice to have things to add to your faith when you get the chance. No, they must be added to our faith with every effort and with diligence. Why? Because, in a broader sense, in the context of the letter, these are the qualities you need so that you don't end up like these false teachers who made shipwreck of their faith and who it would be better for them if a millstone were tied around their neck and were to be thrown into the sea. So this, dear Christian, brother and sister, this is the solution. The solution is not just more faith, believe in Jesus harder. What does that even mean? But rather, bring your faith into fruition in these qualities and things just like them. When Jesus says, follow me, which, by the way, works as a simple working definition for what discipleship is, to follow Jesus, when he says, follow me, he does not mean listening for his voice in a mystical way so that you can know who to marry or what your job should be or if you should move here or there. No, he means act like me, follow my example, imitate me, walk in my footsteps. That's what it means to be His disciple. So we pick up the study of these qualities right where we left off last week. In that message, last Lord's Day, we saw Peter give us four very clear, forward-looking answers to our general question. Why should we add these qualities to our faith? That's the question. Why should we, as individual Christians, what is the motivation, what is the biblically warranted, exegetically rooted reason that we should add these qualities to our faith? Number one, we looked at last week. Number one, adding and growing in these qualities ensures effectiveness and fruitfulness. That's verse 8. Number two, lacking these qualities means forgetting the gospel and potentially apostasy. I get that from verse 9. That was last week. Now number three. Adding and growing in these qualities ensures perseverance and confirms our calling and election. It's right there. I'm, I'm just really rearranging some of the words and concepts in verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, see, he's, there's an equal sign between the diligence that we need to apply in confirming our calling and election, and the diligent practice, or the, the with every effort practice of these qualities. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Because therefore, in, in saying therefore, he's, he's actually showing that he's summarizing this whole passage. So this, this concept of confirming your calling and election, in fact, in, in many of your English translations, the, the heading beginning at verse Three is confirm your calling and election. That, that's actually a good interpretation. That that concept of confirming your calling and election is, is the idea, the thread that runs through verses 3 through 11. 
Thus, to add these qualities to our faith is what it means to confirm our calling and election. What do these terms mean? We could spend hours and hours talking about calling and election. I'm going to try to present what I believe is the right understanding of this text in context. I do want to persuade you of these things, not because I care about winning an argument, but because I care about your soul. And I believe and see and know from my own life that these things are good and will help you as they have helped me persevere to the end. So, I'll state the premise of this verse in context, and and I'll draw from some other verses, and I'll present it in an organized, uh, systematic way. Number one, God elects or chooses people to save out of His own goodness and grace. Number two, God calls these people to Himself, even as He calls all men and women to Himself. But He also gives the gifts of faith and repentance to His elect. Number three, this is not our own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Number four, Yet, even though all that is true, yet we can't hold each other or even ourselves over a spiritual blacklight and say, elect or not. We cannot see into another person's heart or into our own heart like a scientist would and say, I have verified that this one is elected. It is, in many ways, God's mystery. To use the language of this verse, then, election is not something that is out there to be seen like a roster on God's website. Rather, It is a spiritual reality to be confirmed, literally made sure or firm. Number five, further, even if we are in Christ, the temptation is always there to presume on our salvation or being one of the elect. And we can allow, in that presumption, we can allow sin to linger and rebellion to fester. This is exactly what the Jews in Jesus' day were saying. We have Abraham as our father. We're in the covenant. That temptation is there for us as well. So number six, the believer is then encouraged and privileged to confirm the fact, to confirm the fact that they are in Christ. That we are, in fact, one of the ones that God has given into the hands of His Son, Jesus. And this is for our sake and for the sake of others. We'll talk about some of this next week. One of the best gifts that you can give your friends and family is a faith supplemented by these virtues that leaves no question in their minds. Been to too many funerals where there's some question. The kindest thing you can do for your friends and family is to live in such a way where there is no question. So, number seven, in this diligent confirmation of our election, through adding these qualities to our faith, we also walk in such a way that we do not fall or utterly fail in our faith. I know there's a lot of theology in those seven statements. You might take issue with one or more of them. That's okay. There's a lot that we could say to nuance or caveat those seven points, but 
I do think and believe that that is the faithful way to understand this passage in context and in the scope of broader Christian biblical theology. To say it all shortly, if you are in Christ, it is because God has chosen you and given you faith and repentance, but this election, this choosing by God, needs to be confirmed and made sure, not just by remembering your conversion, which is important, Not just by remembering or rehearsing good theology. That needs to be done, but a heart that still hates God can have a lot of correct theology. And this election needs to be confirmed not just by believing harder in Jesus, adding faith to faith, which is circular and doesn't make sense, but rather the point of this passage, the point of this whole section, verses 3-11, through 11, is that you confirm, you make sure your election by adding these qualities. This faith needs to be brought out. It needs to be seen. It needs to bear fruit. That's the point. And I want to encourage you as best I can. I mean, there, there is no way to lessen the gravity or significance of this text. The ideas, the concepts that we're being summoned to in these verses, these are from the heart of God, by His Spirit, from the Apostle Peter himself. And he is saying, add these qualities to your faith in order to confirm your calling and election. That's huge. And it can feel very heavy. But this, this is actually a very encouraging concept and passage if you want to obey. I don't want to do exegetical gymnastics to make it say something else or the opposite of what it says but but look here this is for your good this is for your encouragement you need this truth in order to be all that god wants you to be or else it wouldn't be in your bible i'm not saying that you have to believe everything exactly like the reformers did or i do on this point but i wonder I wonder if the reason that many believers today feel totally unable to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord is because they're not eager to run to doctrines like election as found in this text and to embrace all the help and all the goodness that God has given us, all the resources available to us in His Word. Your spiritual growth can almost be overlaid with a journey to be able to say in all honesty, I love this text. With respect to every scripture, of course, but even heavier texts like this. We are also told to be all the more diligent to confirm our calling and election. We say, make every effort. So he said that back in verse... Five, for this reason, for this very reason, make every effort. So it's not a, a you know, top ten priority list along with everything else. He's, he's saying every ounce of effort you have as a Christian should find itself in some way focused on the addition of these qualities to your faith. And so he's just stacking on all the more diligent. Be all the more diligent to do this. This is a challenge to me as much as it is to anyone else. So I'm not... I'm not trying to talk down to anyone. This is a real challenge that we need to analyze ourselves. If someone who didn't know us very well, maybe, were to look at us 
would they be able to say, wow, look there, a brother or sister who is all the more diligent to confirm their calling and election. What needs to change so that that might be the case? This can be a discouraging question, and if it is, it might be because there are images and ideas that come to our minds when we talk about confirming our calling and election that aren't necessarily biblical and are nothing close to what I'm saying. Here's, here's what I mean. What does, what does this text mean at face value? It's actually encouraging because this text addresses the very crux of so many issues and problems in the Christian faith. So many, so many struggle to have, to hold genuine assurance of salvation. I know that. Many people who are very dear to me wrestle with that very question. I'm not being... Not being rough or uncareful or unconscious of those problems as we discuss this passage. And many read passages like this in the Bible. This isn't the only one where we're commanded to test ourselves to see whether or not we're in the faith. And those two things come together that lack of assurance, that self condemnation, and this summons to test ourselves, and it just becomes a very self defeating, self-focus, introspective analysis of our own hearts, of our motivations, of our feelings. And the more you do that, I promise you, the closer you look, the more discouraged you'll be. So, let me just say very clearly, don't do that. And it is true, the more discouraged you'll be, the closer you look, unless, <laughs> unless you're so proud and have so many blind spots that you're actually praising yourself as you look inward. Please don't be that either. So that's one error, to be so, become so self-focused and so introspective about what's going on in our hearts that it's just nothing but discouragement. There's no hope there. That is not the direction the Scriptures point us. The other error is to try and confirm our calling and election by doing nothing but just looking at Jesus. It might startle you for me to say that that is an error. The temptation in this error is to ignore sin, and to ignore warnings, and to ignore exhortations, and just believe harder. And the more firm you are in your convictions, even if there are biblically warranted red flags going off, the more firm you are in your conviction that God loves me and God forgives me and I'm bound for heaven, you'll actually get patted on the back by the believing community. It happens far too much. So are you saying, Pastor, that we ought to look at ourselves for assurance? Or to look at our own selves and our efforts to confirm our calling and election? No, that would be the third error. No, I'm saying that you need, this, this is the balance of these things, it's not really even balance, it is the only way. You need to critique and assess whether or not you are in fact looking to the real resurrected Son of God by the way you live. That's how it works. That's what's going on in this passage. 
You cannot claim, the Bible will not let you claim that you are in fact looking in faith to the real resurrected Son of God, to the Messiah who lives for salvation, forgiveness, justification, and all the rest, if you have no genuine interest in following His example. That's it. And so if our calling and election is made sure or confirmed through the practice of these things, these these three concepts, looking to Christ, His justifying grace to us through faith, and how we live as a result of salvation are all intermingled. That is what this text is saying. To say it another way, using the language of this text, wanting and diligently applying ourselves gladly to follow the example of Jesus, confirms that you've been given genuine faith in the real resurrected Son of God. It will be imperfect. It will be mere at times. It will be fledgling and it will be weak. But that desire to follow Him is what validates the fact that your faith is in the real Son of God. This is why adding these qualities then proves, in some sense, or confirms that He has chosen us. So, do not be overly introspective. The closer you look at your own heart, dear Christian, or or even non-Christian, the more and more discouraged you will be if you're honest about what you see. Rather, get after it. And seek to add these qualities to your faith. Make every effort to add these qualities to your faith. Isn't that so encouraging that the Christian is not pointed towards this hopeless quest of introspection? God cares about His sheep. And so the way that He has given us to confirm our calling and election is to do things that actually help other people. He cares too much for us and loves us too much to send us on a question of, of asking all these unanswerable questions and looking within. You want to confirm your calling and election? Go love your brother. That's what he's saying. All that energy. Focus it outside of yourself and into these qualities. So how does that confirm our calling and election? I think very simply... Because if you're not in Christ, if you do not have the gifts, the real gifts from God the Father of faith and repentance, if you are not filled with the Holy Spirit, you won't be able to do these things. You won't be, at least, not making every effort to do them. And not in a consistent, ongoing way. And not biblically defined. So here, I want you to think about this. I know this is, may feel very heavy, and I'm, I'm, I'm amped up, up today. Hopefully that doesn't bother you. But here, this is what the Bible, God, gives us to help us confirm our calling and election. These are big ideas, but this is so encouraging. If it is true that we're incapable of doing anything good on our own, and if true faith and repentance are gifts, then if you find that you yourself are able at all to any degree to walk in these things, if you desire at all to make effort, wanting to do more to add these qualities to your faith, then you can know for certain that God is at work. You can be sure beyond a doubt. This is evidence of God's grace today. 
brothers and sisters. You can look at tiny, small, they will seem insignificant to you, instances of the application of these qualities to your faith. But when you see that, see, this is what human pride does. We look at that and we say, well, I guess, you know, that could come from me. It can't. Nothing good have I. That's the cry of our faith. Anything good is God's credit. So when you see it, when you see a genuine application of your will as struggling and as imperfect as it will be to show brotherly affection against your flesh, that is evidence of God's grace. God is at work. You don't need to look inward and answer unanswerable questions. You are one of God's children. That is how grace works. If you look within, you can deceive yourself about what you see. What a trap that is. You can deceive yourself thinking that you're in Christ, but you cannot fake these qualities. Not really. As one example, Jesus says, if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple, he will by no means lose his reward. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And faith is a gift. So if we're operating and walking in faith for the reason behind what we're doing, then God is within. I said last week that these qualities are truly alien. They are truly other, meaning they come from outside. They are not from within our hearts. So you don't even need to be doing these qualities very well. It will be stumbling and imperfect until God takes us home. You don't even need to do them perfectly in order for them to have this election and calling confirming effect. Here's just a tiny example of things, the kinds of things that I see in this room or at this building that to me confirm calling and election. So let's say you're with your group of friends and you're just talking with them and then someone who's in a different age group or maybe isn't like your group of friends, comes up and you can tell just body language and everything, they want to be involved in that conversation. And you, not because you feel obligated to or because your pastor's going to get on to you if you don't, out of kindness and a realization, this is my brother or sister in Christ, you open up the circle to let them be a part of that conversation. That, in its very small way, that's that cup of water type of kindness that is brotherly affection. And in the addition of these kinds of things to our faith, it confirms our calling and election. And all the examples could abound. These are evidences of God's grace. God is at work. Then he says, as we practice these qualities, as the context in which we diligently confirm our calling and election, we will never fall. You understand the, the significance of the promises of Scripture. That he, Peter refers to his precious and very great promises earlier. You read it. Verse 4. But this is one right here. As we diligently confirm our calling and election, in the addition of these qualities to our faith, we'll never fall. 
this statement is actually part of why I don't think this passage is just talking about so-called backsliding Christians or that it is merely concerned with us increasing our effectiveness. If that were the concern, then this text would mean something like this. As long as you do good things, you won't do bad things. Peter is more deep and helpful than just giving us a tautology. That is not what is happening here. He's not saying, just add these qualities diligently and you won't sin. Rather, he is saying that in the diligent addition of these qualities to our faith, you will not fall away from the Lord. That's what he's saying. Again, don't you see the encouragement of this passage, the gravity of this promise? You know, I love the song, He Will Hold Me Fast. I love it when we sing it. I'm not taking a shot at the song, but like most great songs, I wish it would say more. There's a line in it that says, When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. And that is very, very true. We're going to celebrate that reality in our benediction today. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Very rich and biblical truth. But that's not all the Bible has to say to us when we fear that our faith will fail. When we fear that it will fizzle out or grow cold or not be enough for us to sustain us in temptation We must also, we get to also, by the Spirit who indwells us, add these qualities to our faith. And the promise, the stark claim of this text is if you do this, you will never fall. Faith will never fail if it is given the proper nutrients through the exercise of faith and obedience by the Spirit. Faith that is alive never fails. That's the idea. Faith that does not fail. Faith that does not die. Where does that lead? How does it end? Verse 11, For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, the fourth answer to our question, why should we add these qualities to our faith? Number four, adding... And growing in these qualities ends in eternal life and eternal reward. Adding and growing in these qualities ends in eternal life and eternal reward. The claim of this text, very simply and very straightforwardly, is that there is not only a confirming effect of adding these qualities to your faith, but there is an entrance to heaven granting or providing effect. He says, in this way, that grammatically is referring to the diligent and with every effort addition of these seven qualities to faith. So here are some other passages. There are some other passages. This isn't the only passage that connects our life with our eternal reward in glory. There are a few others speaking specifically about the last day, about the final judgment, and who enters eternal life and who does not. Romans 2, verses 6 through 11. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking, 
who do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for everyone who does evil, to the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Matthew 16, verses 24 through 27. Then Jesus told His disciples, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for My sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in glory, in the glory of His Father, and then He will repay each person according to what He has done. And so I have a a, a question and an analogy for you. Here's a self-shepherding question for you. When I read verses like this, when I read passages like this, I'm saying ask this of yourself. Do I gloss over it or move past it quickly or explain it away because it sounds too much like works righteousness? So, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. How do, we, how do we handle that? How do we work that and balance it, if it needs to be balanced, with, with what we know about all of it being of God's grace, not of works? But it is nonetheless true. What I've been alluding to this whole time is that if you have been given the gifts of repentance and faith, and if it is the case that the Holy Spirit is at work in you, then these qualities being worked out in your life granting you entrance into the eternal kingdom of Jesus, it's all of grace anyway. Because it's Him at work in you. So by doing these things, by engaging in life in this way, will we earn entrance into the eternal kingdom of Jesus? No. Will we merit entrance into the eternal kingdom? No. Will we deserve entrance into the eternal kingdom of Jesus? No. There will be provided for you a rich entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus. You know, there's an analogy, or a, this is the analogy, the analogy out there, if you were to die tonight and go to heaven or to the gates of heaven and someone there, maybe an angel, maybe St. Peter, maybe God Himself, were to ask you, why should I let you in? What would you say? This is a common evangelism tactic, especially in the overchurched. And there are so many different angles of approach in answering that question out there that point us to all different kinds of theological truths. And you should never point to your own works. But how would verse 11 answer that question? We need to be biblical about how we think about these things. The right answer to that question, in line with that text, is to understand that in a life lived 
to make every effort to add these qualities to your faith, then when you show up to the very gates of heaven, you will not be asked to prove that you should be there. At all. By God or anyone else. You will not even be asked to speak in your defense at all. I think the question itself puts God's kindness and His saving purposes at odds with our attempts to please Him. That's not what we should do. Read verse 11 again. For in this way, there will be richly provided you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. With this kind of faith, mere and imperfect and stumbling as it may be, but nourished by these virtues and the diligent application of them to your faith, then as you make your approach to that eternal city, where your name is because of God's own choosing already engraved there, Dear brother or sister in Christ, if you are to understand your connection to Christ, your union with Him through faith, then you would know that all those who see you make your approach would join in the command, Be lifted up, O you gates, and be lifted up, O you ancient doors, that this son or daughter of the Most High God may enter in. That's how you will be greeted. This one made every effort, as weak and as imperfect as it was, to follow the example of the Lord Jesus who is King of this house. So surely, this one indeed is His younger brother or sister. Open the gates. This one indeed heeded gladly the summons to make their calling and elections sure. So surely, this one is indwelt by the Spirit of Yahweh Himself. Open up the gates. Come! And the Lord Jesus Himself will speak in our behalf with the cry of command to all creation, causing all heaven to welcome you, not just willingly, Not just warmly, but richly. Be lifted up, O you gates, and be lifted up, O you ancient doors, that this one, my brother or sister, one of those the Father gave to me, may come in. Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And then allow me to paraphrase a bit. And I was in need of ministering to, and you did the virtuous thing for me. I needed teaching, and you studied and learned and gave me the knowledge you had. I was in need of seeing a good example and you exercised self-control to show me how to live. I needed to see the character of God in tangible ways and you put on godliness. 
I was wondering if this whole Christian life was really worth it, and you were steadfast and helped me along the way. I was in need of kindness, friendship, and a place to belong, and you embraced me with brotherly affection. I was in need of love and forgiveness and mercy, and you showed me real, genuine, self-giving love like God does. Then the righteous will answer and say to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And when did we see you in need of being shown virtue? When and where were you ever in need of knowledge from us? When did our self-control influence you? When did you ever need an example of godliness in us? Why did you need our steadfastness in life so you could persevere? When did we see you in need of warmth, tenderness, and kindness? When did we ever need to forgive you or showing, love, showing you loving mercy? And the king will answer and say to you, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Come, 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 you who are blessed of my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Be lifted up, O you gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that these, that all the sons of God, all the sons and daughters of God may come in. Father, we thank You. Thank You for all that You've done. And perhaps there are many in this room listening to my voice who don't believe a word of what I just said. I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. There may be those who hear and love what I just said, but have little or no desire or strength, so they think, to live this way. I pray that they would see that the Word is true and that You have already given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. For those of us who languish in spiritual lethargy, awaken us and spur us on to reject tepid and squeamish zeal for Your holiness and glory. Cause us today to rise up and add these wonderful qualities to our faith. By Your Spirit, make it so that we would confirm our calling and election for Your glory. And Father, I know myself too much and I know that in this room there may be many listening to my voice who hear what we just talked about and in pride think that we're doing really, really well and look down on others who seem to lack these qualities and to treat them with contempt for we, for myself, for us who are self-righteous and proud, our concern and alarm should be most agitated. In a word, Father, please humble us. Do what you must to bring this holy effect and take us through the door of self-abasement into all blessing. Give us confidence that these promises are true and they are for our good. In the name of of your Son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.